Welcome to the Fearless Health Podcast with host Dr. Anne-Marie Barter. Dr. Barter is on a mission to help people achieve their health and wellness goals and help men and women live their best lives fearlessly. Dr. Barter is the founder of Alternative Family Medicine and Chiropractic in Denver and Longmont, Colorado. Thank you, Dr. Eric, so much for being on the show. I'm so excited to have you here. We've got a lot of cool things to talk about today. One of my favorite subjects is the thyroid, and we were talking before this interview, um, just kind of wrapping on here, and I think it's going to be a great interview for you guys. So, all right. So, we're getting into the thyroid, and you know, most people in the medical setting are diagnosed with hypothyroid. Um, you know, maybe the immune markers were run, maybe they weren't, and let's say their their TSH is high, or aka hypothyroid, um, and they're given levothyroxine or synthroid. Do you? How do you feel about the current medical management of how the system is treating hypothyroid? Well, I think. Medical doctors, endocrinologists are doing what the guidelines state to do, and that is come in and support a diseased or dysfunctional thyroid gland once it's already been exhausted. Um, but I think there's a different place and a different approach, and I think that, that different approach is functional medicine. That's where we should come in is this functional medicine approach. Um, I don't think allopathic medicine has the tools in the tool shed to actually address thyroid physiology in the early phases. And so for the listeners, what we're talking about is when, by the time you're diagnosed with hypothyroidism, uh, primary hypothyroidism, TSH is elevated, T4 is, is deficient, and your doctor's ready to put you on thyroid hormone, you've lost 90% of the function of your thyroid gland at that point. So TSH does not rise above lab range until you've lost 90% of the function, and that is key. That is not the beginning of a thyroid problem. That is the end stage of a thyroid problem. That's like saying your blood sugar problem doesn't start until you're full-blown diabetic or you don't have cardiovascular disease until you have a, you know, a massive heart attack. And we, you know, that's just not true. And so the issue is that allopathic medicine's tool to address hypothyroidism is just to provide more thyroid hormone. And that model only works when the gland's exhausted and it doesn't really even work well, but it does normalize TSH. But if you give thyroid hormone to a bunch of people before that, before their TSH and their glands are overly exhausted, they may really become hyper, hyper, hyperthyroid or have symptoms of hyperthyroidism, and it's not the right approach. Although it's being argued in the literature, when's the right time because patients continue to struggle. Um, so I don't think allopathic medicine is doing a great job with how we evaluate thyroid physiology. We're looking at one test, TSH is the gold standard to evaluate thyroid physiology and is it is vulnerable to the most common problem we have in this country, which is chronic low-grade inflammation. So chronic low-grade inflammation, which is what the vast majority of people uh, struggle with, suppresses TSH and hides a hypothyroid condition. So if the vast majority of our population struggles with, with chronic low-grade inflammation, and that inflammation suppresses TSH, how can we use one test, TSH, as the marker for whether they have a thyroid condition? It just doesn't make sense. But those are the guidelines are. And I, I used to beat up the physicians and be like, ah, but I understand that they're following what their guidelines are. And if they step outside those guidelines, you know, they're going to get their, potentially get their hands slapped or their peers are going to rebuke them. And so they're doing the best they can, but it's our job as the functional medicine practitioners to come in and actually listen to our patients and understand that when they're starting to have hypothyroid symptoms, that's going to occur probably weeks, months, even years, maybe decades before their TSH goes out of range. And we need to be able to help them understand what's, what's going on and why they're having those symptoms. Mm -hmm. And when TSH is going out of range, are you specifically talking about the laboratory range that that's when you're losing 90% of your thyroid gland function is when it's going out of the laboratory range. I just want to make sure that that's clear. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. And okay. so there's what we call optimal ranges, which is the healthy range, right? Like I say, like the A range in school. And right. then there's the lab reference range, which is like the F range in school. And so most people assume, and maybe some doctors assume that 
you know, as long as they're within that reference range, that's a healthy range, but that's 95% of the population, right? That's two standard deviations away from the, from the healthy range. Mm-hmm. And if that encompasses 95% of the population, all you have to do is look around at our population. 95% of the population isn't healthy. They're obese and struggling with chronic inflammatory conditions. So that's not the range you want to be within, but that is the disease range. Like when medical intervention is appropriate. So it's the, it's when it gets above that lab reference range that the papers and literature shows that says that, Hey, this is, we've lost 90% of the function by this time. And I think another really important point, and I, I think that was such a great explanation of that is I have seen patients that have perfect TSH perfect within even functional medicine range. It's perfect. And they have full blown antibodies to their thyroid gland, meaning they're full-blown Hashimoto's just because the only initial test that was checked was TSH. So when we're looking at some of the other lab tests, can you go into, you know, the other lab tests that will really give a full picture of the thyroid? Yeah. So when we talk about a thyroid panel and it, what's interesting is in whether it's a blood chemistry panel or a thyroid panel, you'll ask, if we ask a, a patient, hey, did you have a comprehensive thyroid panel? They'll say yes. Cause my doctor ran it. When you totally. get it, it's TSA, TSH and T4 or free T4 <laughs> and that's it. Right. But if you go to any lab core quest, you'll be able to find TSH, total T4, total T3, free T4, free T3, T3 uptake, free thyroxin index, thyrobinding globulin, you can get reverse T3, you can get your thyroid antibodies, TPO, thyroglobulin, thyroglobulin, and TSI antibodies. You can get all those antibodies done. And each test is available because each test has a purpose uh, because it tells a story, okay? And so when I look at the thyroid panel, I want to look at that full lab panel. I want to look at all those markers because if you don't have the rest of the picture, you can't really determine what's going on. And I think it's really beneficial to not just look at a thyroid panel when we're looking at someone's thyroid physiology to see if it's functioning appropriately, but look at a comprehensive metabolic panel that has inflammatory markers, that have blood sugar regulation markers, that have cholesterol markers, because you TSH could be normal. T4, T3, reverse T3, those ranges may be starting to come out of range, but if we look at other markers on a lab report, then it kind of helps us understand what's going on. One of the biggest drivers of what we call cellular hypothyroidism, we can talk about that later, is inflammation. And so wouldn't it be important then to say, hey, if inflammation is what drives the deactivation of your thyroid hormone, uh, that we look for inflammatory markers. So we should run those. And rarely, as you know, they're rarely ever done in a traditional allopathic lab panel. I mean, CRP, homocysteine, fibrinogen, uric acid, uh, bilirubin. I mean, there's a number of markers just on a general metabolic panel that you can look at and go, okay, here's five markers, six markers that show we've got an inflammatory condition going on. So, hey, now these labs make sense. So, um, I think your point that you're driving home is really important. I just want to emphasize that. You are saying, and it sounds like you're saying that other factors are causing the thyroid to go out of range. You've mentioned inflammation a couple times. Do you want to elaborate on that it's maybe not the thyroid that's the issue, that some of the other things that are potentially driving the thyroid out of range, what you've seen? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I think what... I think we have to change the way we look at the thyroid gland, that the thyroid gland just goes wonky for no apparent reason, right? The immune system just starts attacking it. And when I talk about hypothyroidism, I talk about the hypothyroid spectrum. And so at the very basic level, we're all made of cells, right? Cells make up tissues, tissues make up organs and systems, and, and then this whole body. And we're trillions and trillions of cells. And cells uh, can can adapt to a certain level of stress. And when we exceed that level of stress that the cells can adapt to, that triggers what we call a danger response. And that danger response can be triggered by bacteria, 
viruses, some type of organism. It can be caused by trauma, emotional stress. It can be caused by toxicity. It can be caused by medications. It can be caused by disrupted sleep patterns. It can be caused by poor breathing or, or hypoxia. So uh, there's so many things that can put excessive stress on the cells and tissues. Excessive exercise could be another one of those. And when you have excessive stress, what the body wants to do is it, want, it, it perceives this danger. And when it ha- perceives this danger, it wants to slow the metabolism down in an effort to slow metabolism, prevent any kind of support, supporting of this, whatever the threat is, and then ramp up the inflammatory mechanisms. And it uses the thyroid, thyroid hormone as that regulator of metabolism. And so normal processes of cell physiology get kind of tamped down and the inflammatory mechanisms get turned up by deactivating thyroid hormone in the cells and tissues. And this causes us to have hypothyroid symptoms. We don't feel good, but that's kind of the normal process when there's some type of stress response. So we call that cellular or tissue hypothyroidism. And that's what the kind of a big theme in the book, Thyroid Debacle, that we wrote, Dr. Kelly Halderman and I. Um, and if that's short term, that is probably self It'll, it'll, it'll correct itself over time. The stress goes away, cell physiology comes back on, and we're probably good. But if the stress becomes chronic and persistent, then what happens is these cells in dangers then start to put it, pump out danger signals to the surrounding tissues to alert them, to warn them that, hey, there's danger here. There's an infection. There's an organism. And it sends out inflammatory signals to alert, alert the other cells and tissues, and it releases danger particles. They're called damps and PAMPs. Um, and those things circulate in the bloodstream to tell the immune system, like, hey, this is the pathogen, this is the organism, this is the bacteria you're looking for, come get it, or I'm the cell that's been damaged, come help me by sending out this little piece of DNA material. And that stuff floats around. It's good because it activates the immune system, it activates the defense response to come help, but there's a gland in the body, it's called the thyroid gland, that's very perceptive and has signal, has receptors to these damps and pamps. And when these damps and pamps are in circulation and they bind to these receptors on the thyroid cells, the thyroid cells get the signal that, that hey, it's time to slow metabolism down globally. And it initiates a self-destruction of the thyroid gland. And the thyroid gland actually be, starts to act like an immune cell, breaks down, increases inflammation, and actually signals the immune system to come infiltrate the thyroid gland and start breaking it down. And this is our autoimmune condition we call Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And so that's like the mid phase, right? And you can have this Hashimoto's process, this immune autoimmune process going on for weeks or months or years and still have the thyroid gland hang on, still have normal TSH depending on what's going on before. And eventually you'll wind up with that you know, overt hypothyroidism or primary hypothyroidism. But ultimately, I do not consider that in most cases, the thyroid gland was the initial source of the problem. I always look at the thyroid gland as the body's way to kind of break the system to slow it down and massively slow it down. And because if it was just that the thyroid gland got dysfunctional or the immune system was just out of control and doing this by accident, then we wouldn't see people recover from Hashimoto's. I, I had Hashimoto's. I, I exercised and lack of sleep myself right into Hashimoto's. Um, but I take care of, I've been taking care of patients with thyroid issues for 20 years now. And we see plenty of them recover, reduce the need for medication. Some of them get off medication altogether and their, and their Hashimoto's and their thyroid physiology go back to normal. And why is that possible? Because the thyroid gland isn't the problem. It's the physical stress, the chemical stress, the emotional stress, the, the infection, whatever the excessive stress is, that's what's driving a, a da- adaptation by the body to say, hey, we got to slow the slow metabolism down. And instead, we're going to ramp up the immune system. And the way the body does that is by changing thyroid physiology. Well said. I mean, I think you said a lot of really key information in there, but really, really well said. And I think that going and hunting down the thyroid gland, really figuring out the deep-rooted cause versus putting a Band-Aid on it. Because long-term, what do you see happen when somebody is on 
thyroid replacement. They never fix the underlying cause. They never address anything else, and they get put on some sort of thyroid replacement, whether it be level thyroxin, synthroid, armor, whatever it is, whatever your poison is. What do you see happen in those situations? Well, I, I see the same thing that the literature is showing is, is that our, our thyroid patients aren't happy, right? They're, they're not happy. They're complaining. They're, many of the physicians are complaining that our patients just aren't happy. You see it in the clinical literature where they're now arguing over what should TSH levels be? How low do we need to drive them? Should we be using T4? Should we be using T4, T3? What's the range we should use? I mean, essentially, they're lost. And the issue is, is that you're trying to fix the wrong thing. And when we put more thyroid hormone medication into the, into the body. And if you think about it, that it's the problem is this hypothyroid condition is driven. If you say, okay, it's just a glands bad and it can't make it anymore. And that's just the way it is. Then if you put more thyroid hormone into the system and everything downstream worked, like there was no problems at the cells and, and, there was no problem with thyroid hormone transporting in the blood. There was no thyroid problem with thyroid hormone getting transported into the cells. There was no problem with conversion of T4 to T3. If there was no problem with docking to receptors, then you would put thyroid hormone in and everybody would feel fantastic. They'd get their weight would go back to normal. Their blood sugar would go back under control. Their hair would grow back. Everything would go back to normal. But that's not what we see on a regular basis. And matter of fact, what we often see from the person is they're saying, hey, my doctor is putting me on high, on thyroid medication and I'm actually gaining weight. I'm actually exactly. more tired. How is that? My doctor is telling me that's not possible. My TSH is so low. I'm like hyperthyroid, but I'm gaining weight and they're telling me I eat too much. I don't exercise enough. I'm just crazy. Right? So it, it, it's my fault and it can't be my thyroid because they've suppressed it so low that I'm a hyper, that I'm almost hyperthyroid. Well, that tells me that, the person who's doing that doesn't understand the chemistry of thyroid physiology because when we're in, there's two states in the body, homeostasis, right? Which is when everything's calm, relaxed, and good. Like you're cooking dinner for your family and everybody's having a good time, right? Homeostasis, right? And then there's this state called allostasis when there's excessive stress on the system. And when there's this excessive stress on the system, then the body does what we were talking about before. It shuts down the unimportant processes and revs up the defense mechanisms. And I explain that to my patients. Like if you are cooking food for your family, everybody's sitting around the kitchen eating and having a great time, but you're cooking, you got three, four burners on, and somebody broke in and started attacking your family, what are you going to do? You're going to just stand there and continue to cook? Or do you let the stuff burn and you go into defense mode, right? Some of the things are going to get destroyed, but your more important thing isn't food right now. It's, it's protecting your family. The same thing happens in the body. When the body is, has excessive levels of stress, we shift from homeostasis to allostasis. You don't need good bowel function if you're running from a tiger, right? You don't, you're not, you don't need that. You don't need to take a nap if you're running from a tiger, right? You, you, know, you don't need that. You don't need sex hormones. You're not going to stop and have sex if you're running from a tiger, right? So all these things that we want to feel good get shut down when we're under excessive stress. And the other key point here is, is that when we're in excessive stress, the brain and the body don't regulate thyroid hormone the same. The brain gets upregulated, the body gets downregulated. And so the brain is 10 times more, and this little gland in the brain called the hypothalamus is 10 times more sensitive to thyroid hormone than the peripheral tissues, 10 times more sensitive. So it only takes a little bit of thyroid hormone to regulate the brain, but it takes a lot more to regulate the peripheral tissues. But under stress, your doctor, the, the patient's in stress, so their body's trying to deactivate thyroid hormone the gland has become destroyed because of the immune response. Now their doctor says, yep, you're, you have hypothyroidism. We're going to fill you with thyroid hormone. And they try and drive TSH as low as they can by flooding the body with, TF, with T4, sometimes T4, T3. But as the hypothalamus gets flooded and that TSH drops lower and lower, what happens is the brain is saying, hey, I am super saturated with thyroid hormone. We need to increase the sympathetic nervous system because that's what we need to rev up that sympathetic nervous system because we're flooded with thyroid hormone. What does that do? Well, that gives us, makes us more edgy, more anxious. And the hypothalamus will send signals out to start deactivating the enzyme that converts T4 to T3 in the periphery, something called deionase 2. So as the brain gets more and more saturated with thyroid hormone, you may 
conversion of thyroid hormone into peripheral tissue is even harder to occur. And so it is not only possible that you actually start to gain weight and have worse symptoms, it's highly probable if you have excessive stress going on in the body that the lower your TSH goes, the worse your symptoms get. And are the symptoms going to be more related to hypothyroidism? You get more like hyperthyroid, hyperthyroid symptoms in the brain. So mm-hmm. upregulation of sympathetic nervous system, brain fog, lack of sleep disruption, because the brain's in hypervigilant mode, right? Mm-hmm. But the peripheral tissues, you're typically going to see, you're going to, you're going to typically see more slowed metabolism. The things that we typically see, like weight gain and fatigue and constipation and low libido. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you get the best of both worlds, and that's total sarcasm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, are you, you've, you've talked about a concept called cellular hypothyroidism. Do you want to explain that a little bit? Yeah. So with, what's really important to understand is that the, what drives hypothyroid symptoms or hyperthyroid symptoms is not how much thyroid hormone is produced by the gland. The, the gland produces thyroid hormone, puts it into the bloodstream, but all the individual cells and tissues have control to either convert thyroid hormone to an active form or deactivate it to an inactive form. And so what's happening in the cell determines what we experience. And we want the cells to be able to activate or deactivate because we don't want all the metabolism of every cell turned on at the same time. We want our liver to be able to work separately from our GI tract, from our ovaries, from our uterus, from our hypothalamus. So all the tissues need to have their own control of their metabolism. And But cellular hypothyroidism is the net low level or deactivation of thyroid hormone in the peripheral cells and tissues, meaning those cells and tissues, GI tract, ovaries, whatever the tissue is, it has a net down regulation of, of, of thyroid physiology, and, and that's what's driving hypothyroidism. So if you think about it, lack of T3 binding to the receptors inside cells and tissues is what causes symptoms. And this can happen despite a normal TSH, a normally functioning gland, because ACE, ACE, if, you're, if you have an infection in your GI tract, your GI tract is going to slow down metabolism so that it can and ramp up the defense because there's an infection there. That's exactly what should happen. But that doesn't necessarily, we don't necessarily need the whole, whole body's physio, thyroid physiology shut down. The body wants to be able to have control where it needs it. So cellular hypothyroidism is the deactivation of thyroid hormone in your peripheral cells and tissues, and that's what's causing you to have hypothyroid symptoms. And that can occur with a healthy gland or a disease gland with a normal TSH or high or low TSH. Do you find that one to be more common than, for example, primary hypothyroid? I think it's way more common. Nobody looks for it. Yeah, but I think the vast majority of the population has ebbs and flows in and out of cellular hypothyroidism. And I think that's totally normal in different tissues to have it at different periods of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, 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 when I look at labs, I'm typically looking at, hey, what's, what's, let's look for indicators of this. What's our, what's, our, what's our T3 levels? If T3's levels are suppressed, that's probably a good indication that we don't have sufficient thyroid hormone T3 inside the cell. If reverse T3 levels are elevated, that's the deactivated form of T4. T4 is that pro-hormone that can, it's not quite ready for use in most cases, like we think about thyroid physiology, but it can be converted to T3, which is the primary active hormone, or it can be deactivated to reverse T3. And if it's, if you see a larger, if you see your reverse T3 levels going up, it's a good indication that your cells are deactivating it. Um, and then the other thing we can do is we can take a look at T3 to reverse T3 ratios or free T3 to reverse T3 ratios. And if those are, are low, then again, we're favoring the deactivation of thyroid hormone versus the activation. And that's going to be typically result in hypothyroid symptoms. So something interesting that you, you haven't covered, but I just, you know, got a, a thought about it was, you know, when we're seeing reverse T3 go out of whack, do you ever think of hormones? 
do I think that hormones could be causing it? Yeah. Do you think like excess estrogen? Do you ever get concerned about that? I'm always concerned about everything. Um, and so when I, I when I see it, I'm not trying to to change it you know, directly. It's just reverse T3 elevation or the ratios going down just tells the story. Mm-hmm. It's, it tells us that we have cellular hypothyroidism going on. Our cells and tissues are trying to deactivate it. And I don't look, I don't try and force it down. I know that right. sometimes in functional medicine, people are saying, well, if you have high reverse T3, then we have to not give you T4. We have to give you T3 and that'll lower reverse T3 because some people believe that reverse T3 is blocking T3 function. And that actually doesn't occur mm-hmm. uh, at the nucleus. Um, but I don't think it benefits any of us to lower reverse T3 because reverse T3 in itself is not the problem. Again, again, we have to just ask the question, what's, what are the labs telling me? What's the story being told? And so it could be, uh, it could be hormone dysregulation. It could be infection. It could be lack of sleep. It could be poor breathing. It could be a number of factors. And that's the, that's the hard part. And it's not the sexy part. Like everybody's looking for the sexy answer. Oh, it's EBV. Well, maybe, but you know, or maybe it's five other viruses and maybe it's the fact that you you're in a bad relationship with your spouse and maybe it's because you only get four hours of sleep a night. Maybe it's because of whatever. Right. So uh, we have to look at all those other factors. I don't, I don't know about you. What I have seen in practice is that I don't think there's a golden bullet, you know, to fixing thyroid. It tends to be multiple of these systems are off and it's, you know, it's, it's all those things that you've said, but my, the fascinating thing to me is when I ask somebody about their toxin exposure, for example, have you been exposed to toxins? No, like a resounding no. And I'm like, really? Okay. Like, do you have a water filter? Do you go outside? Do you have an air filter in your house? Like, um, oh, and by, oh yeah. And I did live down the street from, you know, um, a uranium mine, <laughs> you know, and you start to, you start to look at these things and you start to put it together. And then it just all, I believe culminates and creates this because like you've said, this is more end stage pathology. This just didn't wake up and happen, but people are so disconnected and even, you know, gut symptoms Well, I'm bloated or I, you know, I, I don't poop every day, but I think it's normal. And I think that people have gotten used to this really super average way of living that they've gotten used to all these symptoms and they just write them off as getting older or that's normal and x y and z would you agree yeah i I, you know we're inundated with toxins right that's a huge issue and so um the problem is is that if you're inundated with toxins you don't realize you're inundated with toxins i mean there's from you know, what do you wash your dishes with, right? That little cube in the dishwasher, right, is now we know that disrupts the gut floor and the gut bacteria. Um, and yet you would never think about it. You just throw it in there and you wash your stuff. You don't think about mm-hmm. the clothes and what you wash your clothes in and what you put on your body. You just, you just kind of move through life, not really breaking all those things down and saying, man, I got a toxic load. I totally agree with you. It's usually not one thing. I mean, there are a few people that'll come in and say, hey, look, uh, I had a bad divorce and within six months I developed Hashimoto's or I developed hypothyroidism. Okay. So that divorce may have been so stressful and that was the trigger or that was just the straw that broke the camel's back. Right. Totally. And so I think we look around and we go, well, I'm healthy compared to him or her. Right. But we talk about health all the time and nobody can give you a good definition of health. That's yeah. Problem, what right? does health mean? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a state, it's a state of wellness, right? Okay. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that you're healthy. Okay. Well, what is that? So we, even if you look at the definitions in the, in, in the book, you know, Kelly and I, I, I spent, you know, days, really weeks trying to say, okay, we have to, there has to be a really good definition in the World Health Organization's definitions, not very good either. Um, but the problem is, is everybody thinks they're healthy and nobody thinks they have a problem, right? And if you're educated by the, by the TV, I mean, everybody just has natural diseases that occur and it's just a drug deficiency, right? You just need more of those. Um, but we just are not as aware of the state of, of poor health that we're in. And we're not aware of how things accumulate 
and really become the problem. It's usually not one thing, but the accumulation of stress. And because we're not as proactive at really building up our health, we, we, we just become less and less resilient over time and the load just brings us down. And that's the big, that's the big problem. And for many people, they, we, they grew up in this allopathic model that, Hey, if you have X, we give you Y and then you're good. But that's not functional medicine. That that's allopathic medicine. That's disease management. That's symptom management. Functional medicine is about trying to take you from a non-self-reliant state or non-adaptable state into a state of, adaptability in your environment, of self-resilience, to be able to thrive in your environment. And that takes work, it takes effort, and it takes understanding what the stressors are. You can't ignore the stressors in that model. You actually have to start to work on them. But it's not sexy. I mean, it really isn't. And sometimes people come to us in functional medicine with an allopathic approach. And some functional medicine practitioners have an allopathic approach, which is, hey, I'll give you a supplement for every symptom you have or for every diagnosis you have. And now you have a person who's taking 20 supplements instead of 10 medications. And you're, I, I look at that and I go, that you didn't, you're not any better. If you need 20 supplements to be this sick, you don't need any, you know? So what we need to do in functional medicine is help our patients say, look, this is going to take work. If you want to be healthy long-term, you're going to have to find a right level of exercise. You're going to have to work on sleep. You're going to have to work on health, healthy respiration. You're going to have to work on mindset. You're going to have to have good habits. You're going to have to work on your relationships. You're going to have to put work into this because you're either going to put work into being healthy or you're going to put a lot of work into being sick and ill. You're going to put work into one of them. I say, suggest you put it into being healthy and you don't have to live a perfect life, right? I don't live one. I'm sure you don't live a perfect, perfect life. I mean, life I try. Either. I really try. I try to practice what I <laughs> preach for sure. But it's it can be tough. Yeah. But, but I tell people, look, you don't have to have a perfect life. What you need to have is a lot of healthy habits. If 80% of your habits are healthy and you have a few unhealthy behaviors, you're going to probably be fine. Your body is resilient. But if, you're, if your habit... If you have a lot of unhealthy habits and only a few healthy behaviors, you're in trouble. Like I exercise two or three times a week, but I drink like five nights a week. I only get about four hours of sleep a night. I spend a lot of time watching TV. I never work out. Yeah, I got three wives. You know, you know I mean, it's just they're, they don't realize they got all these unhealthy habits and they go, well, I worked out twice and I ate a salad last week. How come I'm sick? Yeah. Or why, why do I have blood pressure issues? You, we People just if you just flip it, have really healthy habits and those become just, they are habits, meaning you don't even really think about them. You just do them. You get up in the morning, you exercise. That's what you do. You eat a healthy meal. You do time-restricted eating. You get to sleep and you try and get six, eight, six to eight hours of solid sleep each night. You know, you minimize the boob tube. You stay off the Instagram, you know, all the other stuff. Man, you can really be healthy and it really doesn't take as much work as most people think. I agree. Yeah. And I think you're right about the habits, but it really is a challenge for a lot of people to change their lifestyle. Um, I think we have become addicted to work. I, I think that that's a big addiction in our country is we're definitely addicted to work. And when you try to have people pare their work schedule down, they can't, they don't seem to make time for exercise or time to go to bed earlier, time to cook meals, which is a huge percentage of it. You know, I give I certainly give supplements to like for to address problems, you know, like we're addressing underlying issues. It's for a short time, you're going to be off of that. This is for a short time, you're going to be off of that. But it's to fix an underlying cause. But people just think that they can just do supplements and that's going to get them all the way there. And a supplement is a supplement to your lifestyle. It's not in place or of your lifestyle, which I I think that uh, patients have to get out of the allopathic model too. Like you're going to give me something, it's going to fix me. No, like we're on this, we're in this as a team. We're going to fix this together versus, you know, this is, oh, I'll take this pill, I'll be fine. And I think we can see that, you know, with all the hype on the coronavirus going around, you know, folks on, you know, ACE inhibitors or, you know, you know, mismanaged diabetes, we're, you know, we're, 
that's becoming a huge problem because the conditions weren't really managed and now they're more susceptible to this virus, which is incredibly sad, you know, so it's just not a management. It's just a management of it. It's not a cure or it's not a fix. You're just managing it. So, okay. Um, I, my rant. So the thyroid debacle, why did you name your book the thyroid debacle? I think that's a really funny name. Well, because the way we're, the way we're treating thyroid physiology is a debacle. I mean, we're not, we're, we've, we've hung our, our hat on one lab marker that is not what we thought it was. It's, it's not a very reliable marker. Uh, it's, it's suppressed by chronic inflammation and it's suppressed by one of the most common drugs we prescribe, which is called metformin for diabetes. Um, and so if it's, it can be, if it can be inhibited by the two most com- two, two of the most common problems we have diabetes and the drug we use to treat diabetes and chronic low grade inflammation, how valid a marker can it be? If it doesn't go out of lab range until 90% of the thyroid gland is diseased or dysfunctional, how valid a marker could it be? Some people argue that it's a valid marker for thyroid pathology. Well, many people have thyroid nodules and thyroid cancer and still have normal TSH. So how valid of a marker could it be on its own? And then we just decided that if we just fill, put enough thyroid hormone into the system that TSH normalized that we fixed the physiology of the whole body and totally ignored that the stuff has to transport through the body, get into the cells and not, then the whole body doesn't regulate the same. This isn't new stuff. I mean, this is stuff that's in the literature, but essentially because we don't, allopathic medicine doesn't have another tool. They're just essentially ignoring the rest of the physiology. And meanwhile, our patients are struggling. And we were talking, you talked about like with COVID or talking about diabetes, it is nearly impossible to have diabetes without having cellular hypothyroidism first because to get thyroid hormone into the cell requires optimal levels of T3 to activate the glucose transporters. So whether it's pulling glucose into the blood, into the cells during, you know, a fasted state, like, or during, or pulling glucose into the cell after eating via the insulin transporters, all the glute transporters require T3. So if somebody's deactivating thyroid hormone, then they're going to have decreased glucose transport. Therefore, they're going to have more sugar floating around. They're going to become insulin resistant, and that sugar has got to go somewhere, and that's going to go into fat cells. And so if you're gaining weight, if you have been diagnosed with prediabetes, high blood sugar, or diabetes, you probably have some level of cellular hypothyroidism going on. If you have elevated cholesterol, they pe- people are just putting you on a statin. What's the most, co- most likely cause of elevated cholesterol is cellular hypothyroidism, but we don't pay any attention. The guidelines, the, the, guide, the thyroid guidelines will s- state right in the guidelines that thi- elevated cholesterol is a, is a marker of cellular hypothyroidism, but we're not going to use it as a tool to measure thyroid physiology. It, I, it, it just, it, it baffles the mind that we're just... We've, you know, we have tunnel vision and meanwhile, hundreds and hundreds of patients are struggling and being diagnosed with other disorders because they have cellular hypothyroidism. They have this cell stress that's triggering cellular hypothyroidism. Maybe they're already into autoimmunity, but their gland is still holding on or it's being hidden by their inflammatory mechanisms or their drugs. And they're being put on more and more and more medications and being told, hey, you just need to exercise harder. You just need to eat less. You need to to go on an antidepressant. And it's crazy. What we need to do is just do a better job of being doctors and take a big look at everything. Just get out of our uh, reductionist model of medicine and go back to where we where our roots really should be, which is, hey, let's look at the big picture. Everything's connected. So I just think what we're yeah. doing is a debacle, and it's not, it is not necessarily against any one physician. It's the system I'm upset with, not individual physicians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how many people do you actually think are impacted by hypothyroidism at this point? I, I, I would imagine that if we started really looking at, multi, at, at patients and looking at the indicators of cellular hypothyroidism, we'd probably, probably see at least 40 to 50% of the population has some type of cellular hypothyroidism, maybe even early immune activation going on. Um, 
because 40 to 50% of the population is overweight, 40 to 50% of the population has got diabetes. So I would say that probably a larger, much larger percentage of the population has hypothyroidism than the 10%, 10 to 12%. That's the 10 to 12% that they say has hypothyroidism in this country and worldwide. That's the people who have gland exhaustion. That doesn't count all the people that are in that subclinical or, or, or cellular hypothyroid or tissue hypothyroid state or have suppressed TSH. If you only measure TSH, how would you ever detect it? So the, it skews the value or the, the numbers. Yeah, I can't ever figure out how large of a percentage that is or of the population because you know the folks that come and see me when we'll fix it, right? They, they're never being reported anywhere of having, you know, hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's at the time or whatever it is. What percent, and you think it's a pretty large percentage of people that have hypothyroidism that also have Hashimoto's autoimmunity. Is that correct? I think, I think there's a large percentage of people that have, that have Hashimoto's that probably aren't checked for it. Okay. But yeah, I think I if we look at, we look at this thing as a spectrum, right? And so, mm -hmm. Hey, I've, I've got this cell attack. Now I've got the cellular deactivation. At some point I'm going to kick in the immune process to start seeing destruction of the gland, whether we see the antibodies or not. Uh, it all depends on the individual. Sometimes we see people that have pretty much quite a bit of gland destruction, but their antibodies don't, aren't showing up. And that's, that can be part of that's what's going on with the chemistry. Um, but I think the numbers are probably greater, uh, than what's reported. But I think the vast, when you take a look at primary hypothyroidism, maybe those numbers are right. But when you take a look at really problems with thyroid physiology, it's, it's much greater. Great, great information. So what, what are a couple things or, and it can be as many things as you think are important that are important for keeping yourself and your patients healthy? Yeah. So we talk about in the book, we talk about things called fitness factors and uh, you know, they're just aspects of health that I think everybody's got to have a higher level of fitness in. So like physical fitness, the more physically fit you are, you know, the less likelihood less likely you're going to have health problems, right? So I think that's important. Now, it, yeah, there's caution that needs to be there. I mean, I would, I'm an endurance athlete. So uh, when I drove myself to Hashimoto's because I was overtraining and undersleeping, I thought I could, you know, get by like, like on four hours of sleep because, you know, I'm, I've got a business, you know, got kids, I coach, I'm training and, you know, I'm training and, and doing all this stuff and lack of sleep, like I'm still in my twenties. And when you're in your forties and you're doing that, it's excessive stress. And that drove me to have insulin resistance and, and cellular hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's and, you know, it starts to cascade. So I think physical fitness is really important, but we got to be careful that we don't do exhaustive exercise without recovery. Right. And you see the mom's or the, I, I see this more in the female community who are endurance athletes. They're so concerned about their muffin top and they think they have to train harder and train harder because they have that little muffin mm. top. And the reality is what they probably need to do it's is rest. chill out. Yeah. They need to recover. They need to chill out. They don't need a more expensive trainer. They need to chill out and take a couple of days rest. But when you're in your forties and you're trying to be competitive, you're like, oh, now I got to go harder. Right. So that's a toughie. I think sleep is critically important and most people don't just don't get either enough sleep or enough quality sleep. And there's plenty of research out there that shows that really we should be striving for seven to eight hours of uninterrupted sleep. Um, and the vast majority of people aren't getting it. And there's so many ways to measure it now. There's so many devices like a bio strap or an aura ring um, uh, that you can measure your sleep cycles and they're not perfect, but you can definitely see where those things are. But if you don't have good sleep, just get in the habit of, hey, I'm going to go to bed at this time. I get up at this time. Just start with simple tools. And we talk about those in the book. Other thing is respiration. I mean, if you, if you do not breathe well, that's a massive stressor on your system. And most people just, when we're talking about things that we don't pay attention to, we don't pay attention to how we breathe. And so for me, I've had my nose broken so many times that I, you know, I have a deviated septum and I don't breathe well. And so 
that was probably part of my issue is I was always mouth breathing when I was, when I was running, cause I don't breathe well through my nose. And I was definitely mouth breathing at night when I was sleeping. And when you mouth breathe, you reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in the system, which means your red blood cells can't give off the oxygen. So your tissues become hypoxic and you're still, that's a stressor. If you're not getting oxygen to your tissues, that's a stressor. And so you need to learn how to breathe appropriately. I do a lot of uh, education on this with my patients. I have them, you know, nose tape, mouth tape, and it sounds crazy to put tape over your mouth when you go to bed at night. People are like, what? But um, man, it doesn't take long for somebody who does that on a regular basis to, to find, come in and say, hey, I'm not snoring. I'm sleeping better. I'm waking up with more energy. Absolutely. Hey, and now I'm starting to lose weight, right? Because if you are mouth breathing and creating a hypoxia all night, that's going to deactivate your thyroid hormone all night, six, seven, eight hours a night. You're deactivating thyroid hormone, slowing your metabolism down. That could be the thing. You know, we're searching for the magic supplement when in reality it might just be that you're just breathing properly. So we look at that. We definitely look at diet, nutrition, uh, and in the book, we don't, we don't favor any one particular diet. I think we've got too many problems with that right now. Like we see that in functional medicine where, you know, all the, all the food religions uh, circle the wagons and are shooting in at each other (laughs) instead of, you know, vegans better than carnivore, carnivore is better than paleo. And really what everybody needs to do is step back and say, Hey, we're all better than the processed food industry. Mm -hmm. So let's just chill out and let's uh, like support each other because People, like sometimes you have to do AIP with somebody. Sometimes I've had patients do terrible on AIP. I put them on carnivore. They do fantastic, right? I take them off carnivore or put them on vegetarian, you know, so you have to be adaptable. Everybody's different, but we need, I think the simple thing for most people to focus on, again, healthy habits is 80% of your diet, whole food, real food, or is 80% of your diet processed food? If you're, if, if it's mostly processed food, packaged, bag, you know, bag, box, bought it, you know, a fast food restaurant, um, change that, right? Diet is critically important. Uh, mindset's huge. You know, people, you know, everybody says I'm stressed, I'm stressed, I'm stressed. Stress is what you make in between your ears. We all experience different things that happen to us, but it's the same thing could happen to two people. One person thrives and, or, and, and does well because of that same stress and the other person folds. So it's really about how we interpret what goes on in our environment. Uh, terrible things happen to people, um, but it's how you adapt to it. And so mindset's huge. Emotionality's huge. Our mindset's huge. Our habits we are really important. And then if you have those things, sleep, diet, look at toxicity. You mentioned that. I had uh, uh, Alex Stewart on my podcast. She's got Low Tox Life. Uh, that's a great book and a great resource. But let's start looking at the things, the stuff you put under your arm, the stuff you put on your face, right? The, what you wash your body with. Those things can be toxins. So just start getting rid of the toxic exposure uh, in your environment, in your house. And if you start working on those simple things and you knock those things out, then by the time they, somebody comes to see me or you, then we can get into, okay, let's take your blood chemistry. Let's look at the meta- metabolic factors and see what's going on there where they don't have a skill set. But almost everybody can address those other factors. It really rules out a lot of things when they've already addressed, you know, those toxic toxic issues. It it helps a lot. One thing, one comment: the breathing is huge. You know, I was a par- what we call a paradoxical breather for a long time, and as a woman, like we're supposed to have really, really flat, concave stomach. So when I would breathe, I would when I would breathe in, I would suck my stomach in, and when I would breathe out like my stomach would almost go flat. And that is such a horrible, horrible habit. And I've seen that with women, not so much men, but I think that there's just something culturally that somewhere we learn that and think that that's a really great idea, but it makes you fat. <laughs> yeah. And, and anxious. Yeah. And if, if you don't think you, if you think you breathe appropriately, there's something called a controlled hold breath time test, which is a real simple t- test to do. You just breathe all the air out, close your mouth, breathe all the air out, clamp your nose and you hold it until you get that first sign of anxiousness or panic, or you have to swallow or your muscles start to contract. And if that, I mean, really optimally that should be closer to 40 seconds, but I see most of my patients who have chronic health issues. It's under 10, under 20. And uh, which means they 
they preferentially are mouth breathers and the time they're probably the worst mouth breather is at night when they're sleeping. And, you know, nobody really likes to um, say, oh yeah, I snore. But I mean, if you're snoring or if you're waking up with, if you have bad cavities, cavities is a great sign that you're a mouth breather. If you have lots of, you know, you're drooling all over stuff, you're probably a mouth breather. And it is so, it's, I mean, it's cheap, it's cheap therapy. And he's, if they, you can save a ton of time because if they're going to come see you or me for help, what are we going to work on? We're going to say, all right, we're going to look for infections and we're going to look at the other things. But in the meantime, we're going to work on your diet. We're going to work on, are you sleeping? No. Okay. we got to work on that. we got to work on respiration. So we're going to have to do it. So they might as well start to engage in those things before they come to us. And when Kelly and I wrote the book, Thyroid Debacle, you know, somebody said to me, they're like, where's all the supplement formulas? And I'm like, that's not this book. There is no supplement form. Because you know, when you go to a seminar and somebody lectures, like when I lecture, everybody wants to know, like, like what supplements do you use for that person? You don't write that down. Don't write down what I use for that person because that's not your patient, right? Mm-hmm. And so I don't want, I, we didn't put any supplement protocols in the book. We put all lifestyle protocols in the book. And, but so somebody wanted to know, like we, we tell them how to improve their dietary fitness, their uh, the physical fitness, their sleep fitness, their respiratory fitness, their emotional fitness, their habitual fitness. We explain how to do those things because those are the long-term, lifelong strategies that are going to help somebody get healthy, not a bottle of B6. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate the fact that you didn't put supplement protocols in there because there really is no one supplement protocol that's going to work across the board on XYZ case, whatever it is, I, I think that that's a great disservice to people. So really appreciate that that's an individualized approach. The reason I have not been able to write a book is I just think everybody is so stinking different and I, don't, I can't make generalizations. So I think the way that you've written this is a great service to people. And where can people find you and where can they find um, your book? So I... I- I guess now in the last year, I've become a little bit more of a social media person. So <laughs> it might do most of my posting probably on Instagram as, as Dr. Balkavage. Um, but my website is rejuvagencenter.com. Uh, so they can find me there. Instagram is one place I have. I put a, I put a ton of content out on YouTube as well. Thyroid Thursday videos. Um, <laughs> I have a podcast called Thyroid Answers. Um, and then if they're interested in the book, they can sign up for the book on my website or they can just go to thyroiddebacle.com, which is they can order, they can go pre-order the book there or they can go to wherever books are sold. We're in pre-order now um, and Amazon or wherever you order books, they can, they can pre-order the book. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here today. We'll have all the links below and it was just such a pleasure having you. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed learning with us today, please give us a five-star review, comment, like, and share our podcast with your friends and family. As always, if you'd like to learn more information about today's guest, please head over to fearlesshealthpodcast.com for links to their site and other educational resources.